So you know how uh, the best novelty song is also a fake novelty song? It's like a parody version of that? Mm-hmm. Okay, and you also know how uh, William Shatner did spoken word versions of classic pop songs? Werewolf. I want to be with the common people. <laughs> I want to do what the common people do. Werewolf bar mitzvah. Spooky, scary. Boys becoming men. Men becoming wolves. Werewolf bar mitzvah. Spooky, scary. Boys becoming men. Men becoming wolves. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the existence of the werewolf bar mitzvah begs the question, which came first, the werewolf or the bar mitzvah? Today, on your Papa Yaga break time, we're going to be answering this important historical mm-hmm. theological question. Right. Right? And the answer is quite straightforward. Obviously, werewolves came first. Right. So let's break down a little Duh. bit of early werewolf lore. Uh, the earliest werewolf stories that we know of that were written down come from ancient Greece. The English word uh, werewolf Mm -hmm. combines an old English word were, which means human being, and wolf, which means wolf. (laughs) Um, And then we also have the... (laughs) You're laughing out of shock and surprise. I had no idea. I know, right? (laughs) But you also know the the word uh, lycanthrope, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. so that that also uh, is the same... Thing. Wolf is lycos in Greek. Anthropos is human being. Mm-hmm. That's a new word that we've made up with Greek words. Right. There was no good fixed term for werewolves in ancient Greece, but there were lots of stories. Okay. Herodotus gives us the earliest written werewolf story, mm-hmm. and he tells us about a tribe living north of Scythia. So this is Scythia is modern day Ukraine. So north of there is a Poland, Belarus somewhere. Okay. Who are called the Noiroi, which is a great name. Or the Noiri. And this entire tribe, they lived like Scythians most of the year, and then they transformed into wolves for a couple days. Every year, just all together, just for wolves for a couple days. Cool, right? (laughs) Herodotus, who is remembered as the father of history or the father of lies, depending on who you want to uh, (laughs) uh, listen to, because he's just like, he's going around and taking different versions of different stories from different people. But he says that he doesn't believe that this is true, but he's reporting it all the same because his sources who live near these people say, absolutely, definitely these guys turn into wolves. But it's coming from a whole list of all of the different people that live in the north, right? And the people that come right after this are the man-eaters, androphagoi, like the people who eat men, Right. Right. And so clearly what's going on in this in this section is he's trying he's working with sources that have like this really exotic understanding of people who lived in northern Europe at the time. Mm-hmm. In Greek mythology, we also have the famous story of Lycaon. And so think also about like lyth- lycanthrope, the word is uh-huh. lykos, lycaon. There's a a, a root that um there's an etymology with right. the word for wolf. And Lycaon was a ancient, ancient founder king in Arcadia, which is like the wild, mostly rural area of Greece north of Sparta, which is famous for like its shepherds and its peaceful forests and whatever. That they have this ancient wolf king in their mythology. Pausanias, who lives under the Roman Empire and is a travel writer who walks around and like tells you all of the shrines in the different cities that you should visit. And but also I love him because he gives you all of these local versions of Are you laughing because of the idea of an ancient Greek 
Rick Steves. Yeah, he's he's but he's he's like a um, religious Rick Steves, and he's kind of like Rick Steves. I I really love Pausanias because he gives us these local versions of the stories, mm-hmm. right? And so he records a local Arcadian version of Lycaon's myth, and he says that he believes it. Um, where Lycaon was a founder king, he founded the Lycaon Games in Arcadia, which were like the Olympic Games, a big set of games. Okay. And he also founds a temple to Zeus called the Temple of Zeus Lycaios, so wolf-like okay. Zeus, but also kind of named after the king himself. Okay. And he makes a sacrifice to Zeus in that temple of a human baby, which Zeus, not a great guy, but he doesn't like human sacrifice. Okay. So he punishes Lycaios by transforming into a wolf permanently. And that's the version that Pausanias gives us. Okay. Pausanias says he believed this story because there's lots of ancient stories and people a long time ago used to do miraculous things. That's just right. kind of like a, a traditional Greek understanding of their myths, that these are like real ancient history and something has happened where now these sort of miraculous things don't happen anymore. Okay. And he compares the story of Lycaion to human beings being transformed into gods and also to things like Niobe, who's the, the human woman who gets transformed into a stone that weeps. Right. And he also says that one of the other reasons he believes this is because the people of Arcadia still say that once a year, somebody who goes and sacrifices an animal to Zeus in this temple gets transformed into a wolf once more. Except now it's not permanent. Okay. These guys can get better if they live as a wolf for nine years and don't eat any human beings in that time period. So tricky because, you know, wolves want to eat people. I don't know. Apparently. (laughs) I'm not a wolf. You're the one who likes to watch werewolf documentaries that are also vampire documentaries. You were showing me this important vampire documentary that also had some werewolves. Where they explained that all of the indigenous people of the northwestern United States are werewolves. Oh, that documentary. Yeah, it's a documentary. I thought we were talking about the one from New Zealand. Oh, that one's also a documentary. (laughs) Yeah, I like that one too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this one is the one that focuses on the the relationship of one of the most famous recent vampires. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Twilight is a documentary. Anyway, but I, I... I love these two stories, the stories of Lucayon and Pausanias' version and the story of the Neuroi, because it shows us something that I think gets forgotten about Greek mythology and Greek history as a, as a, uh, in general, is that there's multiple versions of these stories and people are skeptical about them, right? So uh, with Lucayon, Ovid has another really famous version of the story in the Metamorphoses, where Lucayon, instead of sacrificing a baby, serves Zeus. Zeus comes to dinner. And Lucayon serves some human flesh, which is a common trope in mythology. And this was a test from by Lycaon to see if his guest was actually a god. And he was, and he got transformed into a wolf. There's another version from Apollodorus, who has like an anthology of mythology called the Bibliotheca, the library. Okay. And in that one, Lucayon sacrifices a baby and then is killed by a, with a thunderbolt, which is like Zeus's traditional thing. Cuts out the whole wolf transformation altogether. Right. Eh. One of the reasons I like Pausanias in particular is because he kind of preserves mythology in its most unrefined form, where he's going and he's talking to local people and preserving these local oral versions of the myth, which I think is really cool. And we just don't have access to that really in our other sources very often. That's really nice. Okay, but what about the bar mitzvah? (laughs) This is the other side of things. Does it also go back to like the third century before the common era? 
No, it doesn't. So this is a uh, relatively modern Jewish innovation. The earliest version of the bar mitzvah that we know of, and this is a ceremony for boys where they're first called in the 13th year of their life to read from the Torah. Um, uh, the, the earliest version of a ceremony for that transition is from 13th century France under the influence from uh, nearby rabbis and theologians in Germany. Uh, the bat mitzvah, which is the female equivalent, mm-hmm. and also like the modern form of the, the bar mitzvah, the male uh, version, that comes about in the 19th century during the reform movement. Right. And we think that both of these moments, 13th century and 19th century, um, the Jewish tradition is interacting with the Christian majority around it yeah. and taking traditions off of it. In this case, it's the communion. Which is, you know, the Western mm-hmm. uh, Catholic and Western Latin tradition uh, of confirming people into the church yep. as in their early teens, right? And what's really cool about this is that the 13th century, mm-hmm. 12th, 13th century in France and Germany, is also what some scholars have called the werewolf renaissance, where there is a renewed interest in werewolves and werewolf lore, both in sort of like folklore and in, I mean, this distinction isn't totally uh, fair, but in sort of like more sophisticated philosophical and literary Mm -hmm. uh, works. And one of the things that marks this werewolf renaissance is actually a renewed interest in Ovid, including these werewolf <laughs> myths that come from Ovid into the medieval right. literary tradition, okay. right? Okay. And both Jewish and Christian writers are interacting with this folklore. Mm-hmm. In the Christian tradition, they are are thinking about the werewolf as this miraculous figure that shows God's continued involvement in human life, where they can still transform people into wolves, or God will still transform people into wolves. And there's also sometimes like a little bit of, um, uh, a little bit of thinking about Christ as a werewolf, or the werewolf as a Christ allegory, because of the dual nature thing, right? Christ both God and man, werewolf, but wolf and man. The Jewish tradition doesn't have a... werewolf. Right, right. So this Christian uh, werewolf renaissance interacts with the Jewish tradition in two ways. First of all, um, under this Christian way of thinking, the Jews are kind of this proto-monster, like this permanent other that lives in your community and is a constant threat to you. So within a couple of generations, this is going to evolve into the blood libel, the idea right. that Jewish people in your community are ritually using Christian blood or especially Christian children's blood and going out and killing children to, to do this, right? Yeah. Fictional. But uh, there's good scholarship that connects werewolf anxiety and other monster anxiety in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries with uh, anti-Semitism. Right? Yep. Like the Jews and the werewolves are, are going together. The other way that this connects is that Jewish thinkers are picking up on these werewolf stories in the same way that, or to, in, in, with this, Jewish thinkers are picking up on these werewolf stories in a similar way that their Christian counterparts are. Right. right. And they actually, so I'm, I'm, here I'm drawing on one particular paper. This is David Shaivitz, Christians and Jews in the 12th century werewolf renaissance, which is great. It's all available online just by Google if, if you have access to Google. 
And he's talking about one particular 12th century school of uh, rabbis and philosophers called the German Pietists. And they found werewolves especially useful to explore theological and halakhic, that's like Jewish law, mm -hmm. uh, problems about the human body. What happens if the human body changes, right? right. And so generally they take the position that uh, werewolves maintained a human nature even in wolf form. So one of the things that they point to is that uh, human and canine eyes look the same, as opposed to like a snake eye, right? right? And so there's something essential that is going to continue between, if you look at their eyes, you can see that they're the same, right? There's something essential that continues between the wolf and human form. You know what's really cool? Yeah. So have I told you this before about dogs having eyebrows? No. Okay. So dogs have eyebrows? So you know how like when you look at a dog and it's like, and it has yeah. little like facial expressions, yeah, 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 yeah. but like you look at my cat or you look at a wolf and there's just something missing to their yeah, facial yeah, yeah, expressions. Yeah. It's because humans naturally communicate with our eyebrows. It's yeah, actually yeah. a huge part of the grammar of ASL. Right. It's your eyebrows. But wolves and other like scent oriented mm -hmm. predators don't do that. Mm. <laughs> so dogs developed eyebrows like they were through generations to communicate with us that's very sweet so like a wolf doesn't have them but like a, a dog, dog does. does yeah that's dogs really cool. and dogs and humans are also the only species where it's been documented that you innately from birth understand their forms of communication well, I'm not sure that these rabbis were picking up on that stuff, but that's really no, cool. But I just think that dogs are cool. <laughs> Can I tell you another, like, just fun specific example from this German pietist uh, rabbinical tradition? Yeah. Okay, cool. So a guy named Eliezer of Worms uh, does takes the part of Genesis where it says that God created human beings in his own image, yeah. right? And he reinterprets this through a mystical Jewish cipher where he changes the letters around in a predictable pattern and changes the word for image, which is Salem in uh, Hebrew, uh -huh. into the word for wolf, which is Se'ev. And he uses this to say that when that the human image, which is divine in origin, uh -huh contains the possibility of being a wolf right he's not saying that god is wolf-like he's saying that god has created werewolves when god created human beings right like there's like these are coterminous ideas divinely by, ordained divinely werewolf. ordained werewolves which is really really interesting and very similar to the christian idea circulating at the same time that werewolves are kind of miraculous right and what I find so interesting in all of this is it actually brings us back to the idea from the werewolf bar mitzvah, right? <laughs> because the joke in that song is that boys becoming men, men becoming <laughs> wolves. These are similar things. These are these liminal situations. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly that liminality that the rabbis are grappling with when they're adapting Christian werewolf lore and adapting the Christian communion in the same time period. I think that's really neat. I, I don't know. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Break time over. <laughs> yeah. So, th yeah, I think that that is awesome. And that's one of my favorite Halloween songs. Mm -hmm. And 
yeah, this has been a little bit about spooky stuff from Abiaga while we're on break. Happy Halloween. So if you want to keep hearing our break stuff until our next season comes out, like and subscribe, right? Yes. Tell your friends. Follow (laughs) us at Baba Yaga Project on Twitter. What's our Instagram? Baba Yaga Project. Oh, yeah. They're so all the also same. Also, at Baba Yaga Project, and we are on TikTok. Mm-hmm. You're not on Facebook. We are on Facebook. We are on Facebook, but it's mm-hmm. an extension of our Instagram, right? They're just linked. They're just linked. Okay. So, well, whatever. It's the same posts on Facebook, or the same posts on Instagram are going onto Facebook. Yeah. It's not somewhere where uh, we are hip youths. We spend a lot more time on TikTok than. Yeah. <laughs> This Baba Yaga break time was brought to you by Patreon supporters just like you. Follow us at Baba Yaga Project on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok.